All I have for you is a word. Well, I've seen too much. Well, we'll try and keep up. Pod, a 32 fans podcast where we discuss all things movies, past, present, and occasionally future. My name is Sammy Chester. And I'm Av Sinansky. And today we're going to be talking about the movies of September 2020 with a feature discussion of the new Netflix film by Charlie Kaufman called I'm Thinking of Ending Things and a mini feature on three movies that disappointed us the most so far in 2020 and then wrap up, as always, with Classic Corner. I thought our feature is Tenet. Isn't that the big movie of September? We're actually filming this three months ago in the past, and it will be released three months from now in the future. So it's kind of like this like, weird time-bending thing where we haven't seen Tenet yet, but we're going to talk about Tenet. Tenet's with us, but it's not really with us. An apparition of, uh, of movies to come, I guess. One of the reasons that we are doing I'm Thinking of Ending Things, I felt the theme, if anything, of the movies in the last few weeks is grim and glum. So many movies about suicide and serial killers. You know, I get that there's less movies coming up because of COVID and definitely less big, flashy new releases. Why couldn't we have been getting a lot of indie comedies or indie inspirational movies? Is it just me or are we getting successively less compelling and more morbid stories at the movies? I definitely agree with you in terms of the movies that I have seen and the movies that we are talking about today for the most part could just be those are the ones that are getting, you know, critical acclaim. Don't know whether it's the case that there's actually been like some sort of change in the marketplace or, you know, something going on. We've spoken about how over the last few years, comedies have been one of the biggest hits. And I don't know yeah. if that's up and down the line, meaning it's from it's big Hollywood comedies to indie comedies, but comedies, they're like the rare breed these days. If you got a great comedy, uh, you know, I, I didn't love the Andy Sandberg movie a few months ago, but I thought it was, I thought it was a lot of fun. And I would definitely recommend it to anyone. Is that Head and Shoulders, the most compelling comedy of, of the year? It's not even a pure comedy. You know, a lot of the comedy the has, has become like genre movies. They either have to now be a comedy and a rom-com or a horror comedy or an action comedy. We just like don't have those Will Ferrell, Ben Stiller, comedy star movies um, Which is weird for a while now. My impression is daytime TV shows are still comedy driven. And my wife definitely loves comedy. And, you know, she watches, for instance, Andy Samberg. She's constantly watching old episodes of what's it, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And she mm-hmm. loves it. And she, and she loves that kind of stuff. And I imagine there's a massive audience for like an Andy Samberg Brooklyn Nine-Nine-esque, you know, maybe not about police these days, but, you know, type movie. And we just don't, I don't know, we just don't get that. And I, I, don't, I, I don't quite understand why. I mean, I don't think, I think Adam Sandler is a special talent, but I don't think there aren't Adam Sandler type comedian talents out there in 2019, 2020. And they're just not getting on screen. I don't have an explanation. There was a time in the past few weeks when we were talking about what our feature should be this month when I was really pushing for a comedy. I said, hey, there's this one, there's that one. Maybe this one will surprise us. But look, they all basically were crap. This podcast, I think of, we'd agree, is pro-new releases. We aren't afraid to call them out when they're bad. A lot of the forgettable movies that are coming out over the last few months are getting unusually more positive reviews than they deserve. And I think there's a sort of this con where movie critics are trying to stay relevant by playing up movies because, you know, in general, the movie audience is declining because of COVID. 
And, you know, I don't feel the need to do that whatsoever, even as I still am excited and want to support new releases. But like Mulan, Mulan was getting way more praise than it deserved. And you even compare it to sort of some of the Disney live action movies from the last few years, which I don't think it's vastly different. And those were getting trashed. I think there's one thing that you won't hear that on Will Be Pod. If we don't like a movie, we'll tell you we don't like it. We may disagree. And, you know, we're still pro new releases as long as they are quality. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is primarily a new release podcast, and uh, that's what pays the bills. So yeah. that's what we're going to keep focusing on. I was convinced, as I've said, that because of the rundown in quality, that 2020 was really shaping up to be just you know a lost year in terms of movies that I liked. So what I did is I ran this comp with 2019, where I picked my favorite movie for every month, March through September, or really March through August, because I started this earlier this month. And I said, okay, for instance, in July which July 2019 versus 2020 produced the movie that I liked more. So my favorite movie, July 2019 versus my favorite movie in July 2020. And what I was really surprised by was that from March until August, which is six months, I was actually tied three to three. I was surprised. And, and I think what that suggests is any year, or at least in 2019, there are all those sort of dry months. I mean, you only have to look till last year. Last year, if you, do you remember what our feature was in 2019 September of? 2019 September. I'll give you a hint. Uh, I'm going to say, oh no, Parasite was October. Yeah. September was uh, the sequel to Bend It Like Beckham, so to speak. Oh, the uh, Springsteen movie. Uh, yeah. Blinded by the Light. Blinded by the Light, yeah. I don't think September 2019 was producing gems. I think if you take a step back, you'll see quality in 2020. At this point, my favorite movie of the year is still Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, mm. um, which I think is very good. That and Palm Springs, you know, these are movies that like, I think, you know, I could probably a normal year could maybe sneak into like my top 10. Yeah. I don't think these are like all time great films by any stretch. I don't think these are like films that are going to like stand the test of time necessarily. The quantity is just so lacking. Yeah. And as we said, like all the major tentpole movies have been delayed, delayed, delayed. Obviously what we're left with is just not going to produce anything sort to the, you know, top heavy quality of a normal year. It's just not possible. To take you on memory lane, I recall our conversation a year ago and, you know, there will be pod uh, hardcore fans. I guess it wasn't called there will be pod at the time. In September 2019, we were saying, oh, man, like two temples like Endgame. And there's been obviously been Tarantino, which had just come out at the end of the summer. But it is, this seems to be a really end heavy year. And that was indeed the case. I mean, a lot of the really, really quality came out October until December or even like going into January. The Oscar campaigns often dictate a lot of that. Um, yeah. And, you know, given the fact that now the Oscars have been delayed, I think, till April. I would love to see an Oscars where movies like Never Rarely, The Assistant, First Cow, uh, you know, that those were sort of all competing head to head for a lot of the awards. I wonder if you will see any of these studios kind of like make an Oscar play at the expense of box office and say, you know what, we think we have, we can like slither in right now and like get some of these out onto streaming before the Oscar deadline and maybe bank some awards in an uncrowded field exposure and make money that way rather than waiting for theaters. Um, wouldn't shock me. Yeah, yeah. And for a studio, I mean, you know, these studios that, you know, especially the ones that are like aiming for prestige, like getting Oscar nominations is a big part of their marketing strategy long-term. So, you know, this could be a year to kind of, you know, for some of these films, they could, there could be some low hanging fruits, you know, rather than waiting till July for, you know, make $200 million, you, you know, you put it on streaming, you may, maybe you make 10% of that, but if you win best picture, you cut, you know, you come out looking smart. Remembering how 2018 and 2019 were really late season heavy years, 
I still am sort of thinking we're going to get a lot of kind of memorable movies before this year is up. And not just the ones that are on our, on our radar, but I think a few more. Let's dive into what we have seen. I would say probably the best movie I've seen in the last two months of new releases is a documentary that was released on Apple Plus, Apple's new streaming service called Boy State. As to the political views, voice of my speech, sometimes you gotta say what you gotta say in an attempt to win. I think he's a fantastic politician. But I don't think a fantastic politician is a compliment either. It is a documentary about model, UN, model government type program for Texas uh, high school kids. They do separate boy states and girl states, which I think is, uh, plays a big factor in a lot of the things that we see in this film. They don't really explain super well how everything works, but basically, you know, you get there, it's like a three or four day program and the students have the opportunity to run for different offices, you know, endorse certain platforms, do the work of politicking and running for office and learning like kind of how like the behind the scenes of being a politician or office holder works. The film does a really great job on focusing on three or four really fascinating characters, some of which they paint as heroes, some of which they paint with more of a villainous brush. I think that a lot of people think that this movie is more revelatory than I thought. It's very like cinematically powerful. Let's say this was just like a narrative feature and you just like pretend that's what it is. There's like a lot of tension and drama. You kind of want to see how it plays out. You want to see who's going to win these elections. You want to see, you know, if good is going to triumph over evil, at least as the way it's presented by the filmmakers. There's definitely a lot to admire from what you see from these kids. And there's definitely a lot that feels the kids placing a mirror on adults and saying, well, this is how we see the grownups doing it. So that's how we're going to do it when it comes to things like bullying and racism and social media, you know, using that to kind of spread lies and misinformation about your opponent. I have movies basically I recommend and then I don't recommend and then like the ones I think are super special. And this is a movie I recommend against people seeing. And the reason is, and maybe I was a little bit influenced by what you pointed out and therefore I was reacting against it. The movie was getting praised as being very insightful and very memorable. And I didn't find it insightful, which you actually owned up to, which I thought was really interesting. To me, it was as similar as the Fire Island scandal docs. And I forget which one of those two I liked more that came out, you remember, last year. Except that the Fire Island scandal documentaries had funnier, more gotcha interviews. And, you know, maybe there's two really memorable kind of quotes from Boy State. One from the Jewish teenager where he says like, yeah, you know, politics is basically, I don't know, stabbing the, the knife in the back of the other guy. Or when like the all American cowboy sort of guy says something similar, you know, but from a different perspective, he goes like, well, you know, I guess I had to sort of betray my values in order to win. I, like those are to me the most like kind of gotcha, interesting kind of compelling moments. I saw Boy State. I was like, okay, you know, I, there's other things I disliked about it. But overall, it was just, it was a little flat for me. It was a little too, how would I put it? It was a little too, as you almost seem to like, too biased. It had too much of an agenda. It was too clearly setting up a certain character as the good guy and framing the others as the bad guys. And I think a better documentary would have been a little bit more the Obama-sponsored movie that came out last year, like American Factory. American Factory, yeah. American Factory, I thought, did this incredible job of really kind of giving you multiple perspectives and allowing you to sort of engage the issue 
from a whole range of preconceived biases. And this one- Good example is that is like you have this, uh, this character who's a, a disabled teenager mm -hmm. um, who if he had had what I would say the quote correct political views would obviously have been framed as one of the heroes of the story for you know, all that he's overcome and like how smart he is and articulate and forceful and trying to push for what he believes in because he's anti-abortion and pro-guns, he's you know, obviously painted as a villain. And of course he uses some tactics that you know, are not praiseworthy either, but you know, I, I feel like if he was the exact same kid who was pro-choice and anti-gun, they would have found a way to make him the good guy. Definitely think that's a valid criticism of the movie. I also just like didn't really understand exactly the mechanics of like how the whole like campaigning yeah. is supposed to work. And what because, they're like, doing all day. What are the kids doing? Yeah, because like nothing like is sports most of the time. Nothing is like actually at stake here because you know. You know, I don't know if you know this, but the impetus for why they went and decided to make a documentary out of this is that at the previous year's Boy State, yeah, the, uh, the delegates have voted to secede from the United States, which, uh, guess what? Uh, Boy State is not actually binding on U.S. policy. So, you know, there's no effect to anything, which just like leads me to believe that like these votes that they have are have to be nothing more than just popularity contests, which you uh, know, were, you a, were you a YU model United Nations, also known as Yunmun or Yunmun? No, I never, I never did uh, model UN. I don't know why. I just, you know, I got, so, I got involved in other things. So I not, only, I not only did it as a high school kid as a delegate, but because I sort of had such a fond association of you know respelling Bulgaria as Bulgaria and you know all the other sort of elements that MTA was known for advancing at YU Model United Nations. Suffice to say that our high school that Av and I went to usually did well at our Model UN, but we also were the people who made like the biggest joke of it. So when I got to college, there was a very different Model UN that was organized by, I don't know, the Maryland State Association, a bit more like Boy State. And I actually was a, a judge uh, two years running at a more professionally run Model UN. But suffice to say, it made me appreciate Boy State, I guess, from that angle. One element that you just pointed out is that my understanding in this movie is that the characters were pre-selected and they were pre-selected based upon, you know, I guess the main guy, the, the protagonist they like, I could see why they selected him because he was like a political activist and he was, you know, a Bernie Sanders supporter going into a very conservative Texas extracurricular. The fact that they selected these people, it meant given it's basically a popularity contest, it helps when you have a film crew following you around all week in terms of presenting you to the other kids as someone who's relevant. There's probably a lot behind the camera that, that we didn't see and they, you know, they wanted to tell a certain story. My experience, and I think your experience, having gone to an all-boys high school, I, I, I think that's probably part of why, at least for, for me, lacked in like, the revelatory yeah, things right. that you know, people saw. Because like, to me, like high school boys in an all-male environment acting like complete asshole animals is just what high school boys do when there's yeah. no girls around and you know, uh, masculine energy everywhere. And, there were tons of things in my high school group that was, you know, felt very uh, resembling to what I saw here. It's galling to see a crowd of like 600 dudes, mainly white dudes, deciding abortion. The only policy issue they seem to care about, abortion and gun rights, they discuss abortion as if like they are the arbiters of uh, of, you know what abortion should be which i guess is what happens in our society yeah well that that, that to me was for sure putting up a mirror be how you know yeah. the, the number of decisions that have been made in that realm with women just completely absent from the decision making process yeah. um you know that's exactly what happened in this movie the fact that there were that there were no girls present drives that there's no there's nobody in the room to say well have you thought about it this way which is why you know in, in general like diversity is such an important thing in whether it's in government whether it's in companies like you need somebody into the room that's to say well that's actually offensive for this reason that 
the person for to no fault of their own possibly just may not have thought of. Well, you know, this kind of environment for this type of event just seems like, I don't, I don't know why they do separate the boys and the girls. I think it's just like a Columbia Barnard thing that never evolved. If you do, uh, you know, you do a boys and girls one, you know, at that age, there's studies that show that the, the, the different genders perform better or worse, depending on whether the other gender is present. Women do better in an all-women environment academically, and guys do better in a co-ed environment. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, that's very true. Yeah, because the, the, girls keep, the girls make the boys behave. Let me give you one, because I think the movie we both saw that I'll suggest is, is actually your favorite movie, and that's because it stars Spider-Man, it was supposed to star Captain America and the future Batman, I think, of Robert Patterson. Yeah, yeah. This was like completely a uh, so this a is Marvel, a Marvel DC, DC uh, yeah. and, crossover. Yeah, and they're all getting to like roll up their fisticuffs and punch people and stab people and you know save people. And so it seems to be a grand old time at the MCU, DC, ECU, uh, whatever it is, theater. Yeah, this movie was super fun. Except the movie I'm talking about, of course, is The Devil All the Time. There's a lot of no good sons of bitches out there. Excuse me, preacher. You got time for a sinner. You know, I studied something. It's called the delusion. A belief that is untrue. It is our delusion that lead us to sin. The impression of Boy State, people seem to be like, is, oh, we're fucked in terms of portrayal of politics in this country. And Devil All the Time takes that maybe 20 degrees further and says, oh, no, we're not just screwed, but we are living in a grim dystopian. And- yeah, we're not, just, we're not just practically screwed. We're also existentially screwed. <laughs> exactly. And we're going to get through a bit more. I mean, I think some of the movies are going to take us even farther down the hole of you know, negativity. The Devil All the Time is pretty far down the rabbit hole in terms of negativity and grimness. All-star cast, the reason I mentioned that is Captain America supposed to be the police chief in the movie, and then he uh-huh. couldn't do it. I don't know what movie he did instead. So uh, what's the name of the guy in the MCU who has one arm? Oh, uh, Bucky. Yeah, so Bucky is the actor who replaced him, who I didn't recognize in the movie. I don't know if you recognized him, but like... Uh, Sebastian Stan. Yes, name, yeah. Sebastian Stan. So he has that Godfather type thing where it's like cotton balls in his mouth, so his lips uh-huh. are really low. It's one of the movies I most admired from September, and that's because I think the acting is really good. There's several scenes in particular. I never knew that Tom Holland, who plays Spider-Man, who's the protagonist effectively in this movie, even though he doesn't show up for the first 40 minutes. I didn't realize, and I'm I'm not a huge Spider-Man fan, I never thought of him as a great actor, and I thought he did a really good job. Robert Patterson, as as he's been doing over the last two years. Pattinson, Pattinson. Pattinson, okay, there's a few more more vowels dropped in there. Um, I'll get it. I'll get it once, you know, he, he gets his big Batman role. He knocks it out of the park. He's so fun. Bill Skarsgård, who I didn't know, he is, again, very, very dark. But there is not a role miscast. And I think almost all the actors are doing great work. And so for the acting and for the sort of there will be blood atmosphere of this movie, those are the reasons I would recommend people see it. Acknowledging that it's a flawed movie. This movie was definitely trying to uh, capture some sort of there will be blood vibe. I mean, that church even like kind of like looks like it was modeled after the church from There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Um, I, I just found the experience of watching this movie to be extremely painful. I mean, some of that is probably by design. You know, that's not the movie's fault for being what it is. For starters, this movie has like what felt to me like a 60 minute or so prologue. Yeah. Um, literally almost an hour into the movie before 
Tom Holland and Robert Pattinson show up. It's like it does. Right. It goes to great lengths to establish, you know, the generation that comes before them, and that's for you know, important thematic purposes in terms of showing the way these the sins of fathers yes you know and the way the that sons. we pass down religion and violence and vengeance and all these horrible ills of society got passed down from uh one generation to the other the same way that we pass down ritual and you know holidays basically by the time tom holland shows up i was like already pretty checked out of the movie um, which one of the preachers was more there will be blood i thought the first one yeah, yeah. i thought the first one yeah, he looks a bit more like him. And he was a little bit more, you know, that sort of screaming-ish. See, you would advise people against it. You'd say it's long, it's grim, it's, it's too much negativity, skip it. There's just like no subtlety. Every character in this movie basically is cartoonishly evil, kind of trying to drive home this theme of violence, violence begets violence, like over and over and over again. And I'm just like, yeah, I got this an hour and a half ago already. You didn't need to like keep driving it home. So let me give you um, one saving grace, and this will crop up in a few other movies. Do you know who, this I found out afterwards, I didn't know going in, this movie is based on source material, you know, like the future. Yeah, it's from another book, but there, it's yeah. adapted from a book. Yeah, so it's adapted from, you know, a very respected book. And you know who the narrator is who, who guides you through the movie? I mean, he's... Yeah, you know, it's the author of the book. Exactly. And the author of the book is born in, what's it called, like Kicker Loop, West Virginia, the small town that's the setting of most of the movie. He was born there, he was raised there, and obviously he wrote his book exaggerated version of his childhood i hope very exaggerated yeah and i would say that this is a movie that even if you didn't know it was adapted from a novel it's extremely obvious from watching exactly that it's adapted from the novel. And, it just it feels like a novel exactly and that's exactly why i liked it because the movie at some point for me and i had no idea it was the author you know who was our narrator at some point i felt i was in a book reading and mm -hmm. what i was watching on screen was my imagination as I closed my eyes and sort of listened to the author stand up at the lectern and you know read a chapter, in this case, all the chapters of his book. And that was special. That was kind of fun. It was kind of cool to think, oh, I'm like in my imagination seeing Tom Holland and Robert Patterson and Jason Clark, who I think is really good in this. And, you know, and they're sort of the people who, that are visualizing the words that the, the narrator author is reading to me. And from that perspective, from seeing it as sort of a a literary visual treat i think it's an unusual bit of entertainment and i think that gives it an extra level of enjoyment that i agree with you otherwise as the movie's well over two hours can be a bit of a chore to, to work through if you like going to author readings try to see if you'll have my experience and if that's enjoyable the narrator has a great voice i think we can agree on that yeah it's a very good narrator assuming the book is as grim and negative as the movie would you rather have read the book over two weeks or have seen the movie over two hours at this point in my life, I don't read too many novels, so I'll take the movie version. Um, I kind of, okay. I just, I just really think this movie could have been much more compressed, um, yeah, and, may, and maybe it would have been an easier pill to swallow. Agreed. But it was just like two and a half hours of just being punched in the stomach. What are a few other hits or misses from the last? Yeah, I will highlight one movie that well done, and one movie that I thought was not well done. So let's go from uh, low to high. Um, I saw the new HBO Max release on Pregnant, which is basically the same movie as never rarely sometimes always yeah. um except it's not good um <laughs> sharp listeners you know, it, will remember that i said this movie was coming back in March. yeah literally the same story it's about a teenage girl who lives in the midwest somewhere in a in a state where minors cannot get abortions without their parents consent and because she has religious parents she doesn't want to involve them and she finds a friend and gets her friend to road trip travel with her to a place where I think to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where they will provide abortions to underage girls without parental consent. It basically then becomes a buddy road trip comedy 
where the, you know, the end result is abortion. It just focuses for me just way too much on the road trip element because basically it's like a slapstick version of Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. It just wasn't really that funny. And I think just the tone where it kind of altering between what is a very serious subject um, and an event that could, you know, is a, a major event in the life of a young girl puts like this attempted comedy spin on it and then when the emotional moments come for me as a result they fall really flat there's like a moment at the, at the very end of the movie between the young girl and her religious mother where you know it's kind of like a reckoning for the end of the movie and it, it might have landed if those two actors had shared time on screen previously in the movie i think will our mia you know co-host right now he said the best scene of the year back in march which i think we both agreed with him was the always better sometimes maybe Sorry for yeah. butchering that. The scene where she's having that very stark conversation. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything like that in this movie? Because to me, that would be the reason almost to see it, to see how their yeah. take on that scene. Not really. There's definitely, it's a, they're trying to pull an emotional punch when, you know, yeah. she actually gets to the, you know, clinic. the clinic and has to go through the procedure. I would not recommend it, especially if you've, if you've seen Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. If you haven't, I would say go back and see that. So I'm going to take your advice. I did not see Unpregnant. Figured I'd wait to hear from you. And I'm going to go with Av on this one and, and, and leave it as a miss. The new movie that I think is worthwhile is a Netflix documentary that's been getting a lot of buzz called The Social Dilemma. Probably the scariest movie of 2020. It's basically about, you know, social media and the way that these social media companies are manipulating us and all, you know, the horrible things that are happening in society as a result. You know, the fragmentation and the polarization and the, you know, the hacking by foreign countries trying to influence us and companies trying to manipulate us. There wasn't that much groundbreaking in here if you're you know following this story watching other documentaries if you're a fan of sam harris you know podcast he talks about this sort of stuff all the time i just think very effective to kind of see it see it all laid out in one place just kind of like the full story beginning to end and i'm guessing it's still not the full story and just the way the algorithm is designed rive up our you know id and just like play into our like are real, like the things that make us excited and engage us and just pull us deeper and deeper into these rabbit holes that polarize us and blind us from other people. And you just kind of end up deeper and deeper in. I mean, which one would you say gives you a, a more darker view of the current political socio climate? This or Boy State? Oh, it's a social dilemma by far. Okay. So on the grim index of September movies, this is higher up on the, on the level of grimness. Yeah, and like one thing that they show that they show is that like me and you, let's say we have mostly similar politics or you know general worldviews, and that you would think that as a result, like we're we're seeing fairly similar things. When I go onto Facebook, when you go onto YouTube, you know we're kind of getting a similar thing. Even if you acknowledge that there's this algorithm that's kind of driven to to play off what we what we like and what we don't like, a a slight one percent change in our interest or like what we basically show the social media companies by liking things and sharing things that we like can completely change the, the perception of what we're seeing. They give like these examples how like you can just like start on a perfectly innocuous YouTube video, say for example, learn about how the, you know, the Federal Reserve Bank works within like two click, the, you know, suggested videos on the side, like you click one and you'll end up with on some like, well, how does the Federal Reserve Bank really work? And like within three clicks, you'll be at like why Jews control the world economy. One of the more influential first girlfriends I had was when I was in my early 20s and a slightly older woman, she must have been in her late 20s, 
And suffice to say, we briefly met over a weekend and then we built our relationship and she fell for me really, really hard, entirely based upon my social media figure, which is not the real me, you know, the way I write things. And this is, again, this is going back 15 years. So things were a little bit more simple times, then. but still based upon how the photos I shared and the tweets, I, you know, based upon how I presented myself in, you know, the internet, that was the person she fell for. And then by the time we re-met six months later in person, because she was overseas, she was like deeply in love with that guy and not with me. And so we sort of, you know, dated for a few weeks and it quickly became apparent that like she wasn't really interested in the real me or the, the me in person. Digital you, which all of your clicks and everything else is being constructed, that and, you know, the of that the people who live and circulate with him day to day, you know, they're very different ofs. Amongst the most grim September movies you saw, you said tops of the year. Didn't, didn't you see a movie about how a bunch of people are going to be gonna be killed in the next 24 hours? Yeah, uh, she dies tomorrow. Yeah, the title was just like, I'm not seeing that, no way. Yeah, I didn't like it. It was a clever idea, and it, like, it tapped into a, an interesting feeling, similar in a way to It Follows. Um, I don't know if you saw that from a few years ago. Yeah, also, um, no interest to me. <laughs> yeah, but basically it's, you know, this girl just like, she starts having these like premonitions that she's going to die tomorrow. There's no explanation. She just kind of like feels it, and then everyone rightfully tells her that she's acting crazy. But then that like feeling of anxiety and existential dread starts spreading to the, the people that she comes into contact with. And I think it's, you know, in theory, it's like this interesting allegory about the way that that sort of anxiety left unchecked can like multiply. And all of a sudden we have a whole society that's kind of sleepwalking, feeling like the end is nigh. But the movie itself just like wasn't that entertaining or interesting. It just really wanders for very long stretches. I thought to be like the first like 10 or 15 minutes like hooked me in. And then I kind of, you know, subsequently like lost interest with each edition. Yeah, it sounds representative of this month. You know, again, yeah. we are highlighting some of the better ones, but I would say that might be the most representative of any single movie this September. So I'm glad we got a chance to give it. It's, you know, it's 20 seconds of fame. Let me give you uh, one or two of my own. Get Duked. It's a Scottish movie, uh, UK produced. What it is, is it's, Three punk teens and a nerd classmate of theirs are sent off on a hike in the Scottish Highlands where they run into a bunch of crazy rich elitist people who want to kill them. And then lots and lots of drugs happen. Your generation, you're always complaining, always saying you are the victim. You madman! One chance, two chance, three We have to stop them. Yeah, low super high. You won't get away with this. We always do. Let's finish this. And the movie is made by a former music video director, and that's the aesthetic that drives the movie. It comes at you really fast. The jokes come really fast. Editing style comes really fast. You know, there'll be like text on the screen and whatnot. If you sort of settle into that aesthetic, found it to be a really great time. Final plug, and this is alone reason enough to see the movie, James Cosmos, who people may know more as the, I think, 998th commander of the, the wall, Jerome Mormont. He also, of course, is in Braveheart. Basically, he's the classic crusty old Scottish guy. So in this movie, he plays a crusty old Scottish guy who does copious amounts of drugs. And he's really, really fun in the movie. And that's, you know, again, as I said, reason enough to see it. But to me, it's the most fun movie that I've seen in the last eight, nine weeks. And it's a plug. It's a movie I think people should see. Yeah, I watched about... I would say seven or eight minutes of Get Tooked. I found literally every second of those eight minutes to be completely annoying and impossible to pay attention and just unbearable. <laughs> okay, so I, so I, I, turn, I turned it off. I do actually think the first five to 10 minutes might be the weakest part of the movie. But I, think, well, I hope so. I think as it builds, it gets better.
and better. I mean, there's a scene that basically is a music video because the Pakistani uh, British kid who thinks he's a hip hop guy, he starts per performing hip hop for a bunch of drugged out Scottish farmers. And then the movie kind of montages into sort of all four kids where they are and, and, the, and the people they're fighting and whatnot. The movie doesn't take itself seriously whatsoever. And yet it does have very much 2020 themes. Is it unusual that we're having a number of movies this year about people killing people for sport? Because there's Get Duke, there's Baccarat, there's The Hunt. I don't know, maybe this is a theme that Hollywood has every year or maybe just in the last few years. But, um, you know, I've seen now, I didn't see The Hunt, but, you know, it seems to be something on uh, movie makers' minds. Yeah, that definitely is a, a trend going on in I think it, movies I think, this year. I think it's a little bit a part of maybe the partisan climate we find ourselves in. Because that, that's what this movie ultimately, the, the, the serious element of this movie, which the directors said they were going for, is that they really wanted there to be a 2020 message of the elites looking down upon sort of the urban uh, you know, minorities, etc. It's hard to take that too much seriously because the movie's just too ridiculous. But I think, get duped, fun time at the movies, it came out with a different title, so if you're searching for it on French Netflix, uh, keep searching. Uh, but it's there, and it's, it's a good time at the movies. House of Hummingbird is the best movie I think I saw in September, but it's not going to be a movie for everyone. And what it is is House of Hummingbird is a Korean movie set in the early 90s. It very much reminded me, and Av, I know you said you've sworn off reading as a cultural activity. But, Not uh, reading, reading fiction for the most uh, part. Okay, so um, reading fiction. I did, I did just read the entire Harry Potter series uh, over the so last few months. This is but... similar to Harry Potter because it's set in Europe and it's a fiction, but there wait, is... Wait, 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 Harry Potter is fiction? Okay, so there is a series of novels called My Brilliant Friend written by an anonymous Italian female writer called Elena Ferrante, who is, you know, she's anonymous. Like, no one knows who she really is. Uh, they're really, really good. They all came out in the last 10 years. There's like an HBO serialization that came out in the last two years or so. The books are incredible. They're really, really good. My Brilliant Friend. They're about, you know, two girls growing up in, I think, 1950s uh, Italy, kind of the poor urban blight. And suffice to say, House of Hummingbird, which is not based on a novel, plays out similar to that novel, which is it's the coming of age of a preteen girl in 90s Korea all of the sort of challenges she faces growing up in Seoul, her search for relationships, her search for friendships, her search for you know, mentors, her search for relationships with her siblings and her parents. The criticism I will say is the movie's way too dragged out. It's way too melodramatic, but it's very, very well shot. And if you are willing to sort of step into a foreign language, well-made, but bit dragged out, uh, you know, two hour plus movie, then this is for you because it is a good movie. So to me, it's sort of a mixed recommend. There's a movie from the late 90s called EE. It sort of is on those lists of like best movies of the 90s, Taiwanese movie. So this is somewhat similar to that. I think EE is like four hours long and this is two hours long, but it's similar. It's sort of like a picture of, uh, of a family in a, you know, in a very foreign environment to you. The last thing I'll say in the 1990s and mid 90s, Korea had a series of completely crazy for us as Americans to think about infrastructure disaster. Ah, imagine you were seeing a movie where throughout the movie there are these dates like September 3rd, 2001. September 8th, 2001. You as a viewer would know what? What would you know was coming? 9-11? Yeah, you would know 9-11 is coming even though they don't say that because you know none of the people in the movie know that the next day there's going to okay. be complaints. And, and so what happened is in the, in the mid-90s in Korea, there was a series of cataclysmic infrastructure disasters because basically Korea developed way too quickly. It's corrupt. 
people built bridges and tall buildings and ignored the safety codes. And then thousands of people died. I'm not making this up. 600 people died when a five-story mall collapsed in 1995. And the culmination of this movie, which is kind of this key moment in Korea's recent history, is when this huge bridge collapsed in the middle of the city. And I think like 80 people died. And every Korean watching this movie, and this movie was made in Korean for Koreans, they know that date when it happened. It's like seared into their memory. You know, they all know people who died. And for you and me watching it, it means absolutely nothing. So I had no idea when I was watching the movie as the dates count down in the movie, what was coming. And then again, it's not a spoiler because that's how the movie's built. In the last act, this bridge collapses and some of the characters are killed. And I was like, oh, like Baccarat, the movie that we saw earlier this year in Brazil, there's a whole cultural language that you and I are probably missing. And you know, uh, The movies people should skip. I used to go here, Lonely Island, comedy, Ob touched on sort of maybe comedies are coming out and they're good. No, this is a comedy that came out. It's a complete dud. Got a lot of love from critics. I don't know why. What you should see instead is there's a movie. I don't know Ob, if you saw this 2016's Don't Think Twice. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed that movie. That's so, the, uh, like the, the improv movie. Exactly, exactly. So I think except for Keegan, the rest of that cast is in this movie, including uh, Gillian Anderson is the lead of this movie. So mm-hmm. it's sort of the same, I think, crew in both movies. That movie's really fun. This movie's yeah. a complete myth. Yeah, Gillian Jacobs. Ah, Gillian Jacobs. Yeah, Gillian, Gillian. Gillian Anderson is from the X-Files. <laughs> exactly. Okay, I'm showing my age. I'm showing my yeah. 90s. Yeah, uh, for sure. You know, she's a runner-up. You know, Gillian Anderson is a runner-up to be maybe the first female Bond. Oh, really? Here. That's she's interesting. Fairly... I, could, I could see her being very good at that. Yeah. Though I could also see them sort of shafting her and making her M instead of Bond. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, you know, I could see her getting that instead. But yeah, she's apparently that. So I used to go here. Like, I, I don't know what they were thinking. Mulan. I don't know what they were thinking. There is zero charm. There's zero music. There's no guts. You know, they people are constantly being killed, and there's no blood. Uh, the movie's an imitation of movies that come out in China every week. I just think Mulan was a complete miss. Uh, and I'd encourage people to see the animated movie from the '90s if you want to see, you know, something fun of Mulan. Or you can check out any of the 30 Mulans that have been made in China. <laughs> if you want to see a real life version. Talk to me about ending things because I think we're at that point in this pod. We've reached enough negativity on some of the themes of these movies. So I think we're ready to talk about ending things. We have a real connection, a rare and intense attachment. I've never experienced anything like it. I'm thinking of ending things. Huh? What? Did you say something? I don't think so. Weird. I'm thinking of ending things, Sammy. Why? And if you were, what would your story be about? I'm thinking of ending things kind of plays a, uh, a double entendre in this movie, I would say. Yeah. Before we get into the movie, I think that we should say that this is a movie that we're going to have to spoil in order to be able to talk about. Yeah. Uh, because of the way that the movie ends and kind of sheds so, new light on everything you've been seeing until then. How would you frame this if you didn't want to spoil it to people? I'm thinking of ending things, at least the way it presents itself, is about a couple played by Jesse Plemons and Jesse Buckley. So the two Jessies. Jesse Buckley, of course, uh, very famous for being in Sammy's favorite movie of 2019. I mistimed my woo, by the way. It was for the second Jesse. Yeah. Jesse Plemons, most famous for Breaking Bad, Friday Night Lights. Uh, He was on a season of Fargo. He's, you know, he was in Game Night. Really good character actor. Tony Collette is also in this. She plays Jesse Plemons' mother and it's a story of this couple, uh, Jesse and Jesse. Going um, to see the parents. Going to visit his parents and meet his parents for the first time. I'm visiting Jake's parents for the first time. He hasn't been my boyfriend for very long. They really are looking forward to meeting you. 
I think you've ending things. Although what becomes clear pretty quickly is that there's something askew going on here. It doesn't really flesh itself out until I would say the last act of the movie where it starts to become more clear what's going on. It's an extremely strange movie, which is what one would expect from Charlie Kaufman if you've seen any of his previous works. And he's the um, director and writer of this movie based on a book. He's most famous for having written the, the scripts for Being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minds adaptation. And then he's, over the last few years, uh, shifted into directing as well. He directed Synecdoche, New York, uh, yeah. five or six years ago, and yeah. Anomalisa a few years ago, and now this. The overall take that I have on his career is that the movies in which he collaborates with a director are far superior to the movies that he also directs because I think he is an incredible writer. He's an incredible ideas person. But I think the end result, I would say at least in two of the three movies that he directed, Anomalisa is a movie that I completely loved, probably because it's just a lot simpler than these two. thought Synecdoche, New York was a complete mess. And I think that I would have a similar take on this movie. I think Um, this movie needed a really, really authoritarian editor. People like to think of themselves as points moving through time. But I think it's the opposite. We're stationary. And time passes through us, blowing like cold wind. Maybe this is how it was always going to end. Spoilers open season of when did it become apparent to you what, and now we can spell it out, what the real theme of the movie is or what the real story of the movie is. I knew that there was something strange going on, but I, I guess I just like, didn't really know exactly what until they, re- they kind of reveal it. I guess there are different interpretations about what's happening here, but I would say the most common interpretation is that every, basically everything we see in the movie is not real and is just a manifestation of uh, Jake, who's put the Jesse Blumens character, of his imagination in the final moments of his life right before he is thinking of ending things, killing himself. The Jesse Buckley character is a girl who doesn't quite exist, which is interesting, especially since she's the narrator of the movie. So that that is definitely a framing device that kind of hides the ball in terms of not being able to guess where things are going because yeah. generally you don't have a movie narrated by a figment of the main character's imagination. If you look at the credits, she is just credited as young woman, and that's because her name changes several times throughout the course of the movie. She's supposed to represent different girls or women that Jake has encountered over the course of his life and I guess he's trying to imagine how life could have been different or better if he had pursued relationships with a girl he saw in a bar one time these different alternate fantasies well what if I had pursued this this girl who I thought liked me in sixth grade or what about this girl Mm. that I saw at trivia night and kind of then interweaving those into different moments of his life what makes it super depressing is that in the movie's title I'm thinking of ending things is a refrain that is often spoken by Jesse Buckley's character the meaning of she's thinking of ending the relationship super depressing that even in in his own fantasies of these alternate realities where he had pursued this, you know, this beautiful woman that he saw he to him no inevitable that, that it's not, it's not going to work out. She's going to leave him. I mean, I had several issues with the movie. I guess I would summarize them as two. This movie is loaded with, you know, what are they called by the youth these days? Easter eggs or whatnot. I mean, references to tons of, works of literary criticism, film criticism, plays, books. Yeah. I wouldn't even call them Easter eggs. Yeah, I mean, they're explicit. It's yeah. what the movie's about in a way. Is, yeah, is and, and I'm not holding in so much of that. I was done by the time the credits finally came, but apparently if you watch through to like the post-credits, there's literally like a list 
that Kaufman gives, like all the ah. references he has. I was done by the middle of the movie, frankly, and I just sort of kept on going. There's two levels, I guess, to a lot of movies. The enjoyment of the actual watch and the sort of immediate post-watch. And then there's sort of, oh, F you kind of understand all the angles maybe the filmmaker was going for, maybe you'll appreciate it anew or from a different angle, and maybe you'll want to watch it again. Beyond the yeah. fact that I can't imagine watching this again just because it's so depressing, and I'm a, again, I'm a big Jesse Buckley fan, this movie to me was not enjoyable outside of two distinct elements during the actual watch. I Meaning the first hour was fun, but like but the entire second hour, the entire second half, I just didn't need. And like to my mind, a movie can't only be good because after the fact, you'll find all the hidden or not hidden Easter eggs and then be like, oh, isn't it so cool that he was referencing like 30 different things that I kind of appreciate? I agree with you to an extent. I think it depends. That's actually a topic that a friend of the podcast, Jared Jerome and I debate often is whether post-movie kind of analysis and reading about it and thinking about it can then retroactively make you like the movie more. And I'm generally very much of the opinion that yes, that my experience of a movie doesn't end when I turn the movie off or leave the theater. In some ways, that's like the beginning of the process for me with certain types of movies and that the more I think about them and talk about them and flesh them out, I appreciate them more and then enjoy them more. I think I appreciated this movie more, but the more I thought about it and talked about it and listened to other people talk about it, did not make me enjoy my experience of watching it more. It's definitely the type of movie that I can see myself enjoying much more on the second time once I you know, understand what's going on with everything. And I've heard several people say specifically that they didn't really follow what was going on the first time. They found it very off-putting. Once, you know, the whole thing was was revealed and they could go back and watch it again, then they thought it was a masterpiece. For a movie to be a masterpiece, it shouldn't require multiple viewings. Yeah, like we can watch The Godfather dozens of times and each time appreciate it anew, but you can just watch it the first time and be like, wow. Correct. 1917, I can watch 1917 after finding out, oh, it's supposed to be this one-shot element, or oh, there's references to, I don't know, these other World War I movies. It's a homage to, you know, his grandfather, whatever it is, and then kind of like appreciate it more to, to cite Jared Jerome. I can watch 1917 the first time and go like, wow, that was a movie. Thinking of anything that doesn't come close to that. My second issue, which is, it was pretty obvious to me by the second time we saw The Janitor, what this movie was about, which is it's the janitor's thoughts as he sort of reflects on his shitty life and everything is a manifestation. Just in the way, I guess it cuts back and forth. And therefore, because I had the big reveal, so to speak, in my pocket in the first half, the second half I thought was gonna have maybe another big reveal or sort of something taking it to another level of Kaufman-esque mystery. But there was nothing the second half of the movie. There was, there was just nothing there. By the time that like animated pig came on the screen, I was like, I'm so done with that. Yeah, I mean, the whole everything with the pig and that dance sequence, I, I detested. I knew there was something going on with the janitor and that it would connect somehow. So I did not put together exactly what it was. And I actually think that the whole janitor thing was complete bullshit because they have the janitor played by a, by a different actor, even though they established within the movie specifically with the parents, that it shows them at different stages in life. And it's played by Tony Collette. Use, you know, makeup and de-aging and whatever else they do to show them when they're younger and show them when they're older. And then even in the final scene of the movie, they use an old Jesse Plemons in that A Beautiful Mind scene. Jesse Plemons just made to look older. I thought it was just a complete cheat. Janitor, who's, who is Jesse Plemons' character, being played by a different actor. What they could have done, but then the reveal once it came would have been super obvious, is the janitor would never have been shown straight on. So you always would have seen him at an angle and that it could have been Jesse Plemons playing him. In the book, they sort of explicitly say how the janitor at some point was finding makeup in the bathrooms while he was cleaning up and he would play with it. And sort of there's this element of like, they all have really bad makeup on and they're all sort of looking very much older. 
but obviously not. So that is still, you know, within the manifestation of the janitor's mind. To me, that wasn't an issue that that's Jesse Clemens looking kind of badly old because it, it's all within that fantastical manifestation. The real world, the janitor is how he should look because that's who he really is. The only reason they did that was to mask the mystery in the ending of the movie. They didn't want it to be a surprise at the ending. They would have just had it be Jesse Plemons aged. Yeah. But because they wanted it to be a reveal at the end, they used a different actor, which I think is uh, a cheat. Three things I really liked about this movie. On the whole, this is a movie I'd recommend people do not see unless Hoffman-esque, you know, those sort of movies are your jam. Otherwise... Yeah, if you're just like an average, you know, casual movie watcher, I, this is probably not going to be for you. The three things I really like, the entire dinner scene. Jake tells me you're studying quantum psychics. Mm, physics. Really? <laughs> I'm so glad Jake has found someone. <laughs> the parents are fantastic. I think sort of the cuts of the filming and the way it sort of jumps sometimes and really throws you off. The entire dinner scene for me is like the standout part of the movie. I'd say the opposite. I was not interested when we were at the house. Um, I was only interested in the movie when it was the two of them talking in the car about pop culture. Those are the parts of the movie that I found interesting. It was like very before, before Sunrise-esque, just like, you know, a couple schmoozing about the types of things that I like talking about. So that, that part I found interesting. So it really tapped into this uh, idea about pop culture, how we form our identities and whether we are really anything more than the accumulation of all the shit we've watched. It's a really interesting idea that it taps into, although I just, I didn't find that it really ends up going anywhere more than where it does after like 10 or 15 minutes of that. The most interesting conceit and question in the movie is can a fantasy exist on its own terms? This is the most brilliant thing the movie does, which you pointed out of, is having the protagonist end up being the manifestation and therefore it sort of, it throws you for that big loop. I read somewhere that he actually didn't want to put any sort of twist into the last half of the movie. The book ends with sort of a, a more horror movie-like ending and there's a twist and people get killed in all sorts of grisly ways. And like Kaufman went away from that, which, you know, I respect. I think adaptation, he's learned how he can do whatever he wants with source material. But I thought the second half, if the protagonist, Lucy, Jesse Buckley, would have kind of broken that memory wall, you know, if she would have really seemed to break out of the janitor's limited memory and almost go off into reality. And, and you know, and I don't really know how that works within the rules of the movie, and I guess it doesn't, but I think they could have stretched that really, really far, as, as Kaufman isn't afraid to do. And that, to me, would have really stretched kind of the envelope of that, you know, can this fantasy exist on its own terms? And they didn't go there. And, and if anything, as you said, like she just decreased and decreased and decreased in the second half of the movie until like she disappeared. I mean, I guess that was probably by design. She's kind of a, uh, a deconstruction of the manic pixie dream girl. Yeah. Because like the kind of like the premise of the movie is like him like wondering how things could have been different if he had only pursued these girls or women that had entered his life at various points. Could that have changed his life? I think the answer is supposed to be no. You know, that's not how real life works. You know, you, yeah. you need to be kind of like self-sufficient in a way. And then when you, you know, you meet the right person, like they kind of add to and complement your existence and your identity it's your your identity is not dependent on meeting this like dream girl that is going to make everything okay and i think it's a, also like a good um deconstruction of just like the human tendency to just like tell ourselves platitudes about how everything is going to be okay eventually and it's just like it's only a matter of time we'll figure it out it reminded me kind of like that scene near the very end of boyhood where the mom is like having this breakdown because he's going off to college and the line that like always struck me is she's this middle-aged woman and her kids are leaving the house it's just her now she says like i always assumed that there would be more this is a feeling i've had in my life also where it's go on and on in your life in the back of your head or at least at my experience is the back of my head like i always sometimes still feel like okay I'm still like waiting for like my real life to start. Yes. 
Yes. It's like, this is just the prologue. You have to snap yourself in. You're like, wait, no, th like, this is it. Make the most of what you have here. This is it. Like, you're living it. You have children now. You have a job that is going to be a career that you've chosen. Like, there's no, there's nothing coming to save you. Say, okay, now starting now is going to be your real career, your real life. Yeah. And like, That's you know, like the classic mid 20s to mid 30s <laughs> to put things into a millennial like context like early yeah, midlife like crisis no like this is what you were always waiting for like you are now on the stage and if anything in 30 years you're going to be slowly kind of put pushed off to the side you know I mean? yeah like no, this like this is the life that you're going to look back on when you're yeah. when you're older this is it this is the prime i think what we're pointing to is that the movie does raise these good questions but there's so much mess there and i think there's other movies and that i think raise some of these same questions but do so in a much more sharp compelling way that uh, you don't need to go to i'm thinking of many things you know to, to reflect on those points the last bit i did really like though in this movie I don't know if I've ever really seen this in the same way. Some of the camera perspectives from outside of the window of the car, and this goes into what you were saying, Ab, that your favorite scenes are in the car, particularly when they're driving to the house, but also on their way back, but particularly on the way to the house. The camera, when it's set outside both the side window, looking at Jesse Buckley when she's speaking, or when it's set through sort of the, the main window with the snow coming down and the wind and like the, the blades, there were moments where I thought it was really beautiful. I've never really seen anything like that. Um, yeah, agreed. Yeah, those, those scenes with the snow were very, were very beautiful. Because the lens is being like interrupted by the window and the snow effect. Uh, it reminds me of two years ago, there was a movie that got on a lot of kind of artsy-fartsy critics lists, which was made by, it was the last movie made by a celebrated Iranian film director, where the entire movie is, is a few three-minute shots of scenes filmed in Iran. And effectively, oh, terrible. you know, it's not a movie movie. I, the way I yeah. described it in my one sentence review was that this is the best screensaver of all time because they're uh -huh. absolutely beautiful scenes with great music, but there's, there's no movie. I mean, it's interesting. You, know, right. you go from scene to scene and then you go to the next one, but they have like beautiful wind and beautiful rain and snow. And I don't know, like a horse walks across the screen. Uh, yeah. You know, I think Jesse Buckley in particular is going against, what was it? Dr. Doolittle 2 that came out in January that she was in. It wasn't Dr. Doolittle too. It was just called Doolittle. Okay. Um, so yeah, had, I saw it with my kids. It was god-awful. So she's had some competitive uh, roles for her best movie of the year, or her most challenging. But I think she's better than this movie. I think she takes a really challenging part. It's not like a best actress of the year type performance, but I think she really dives into it and, and, and is fun to watch. She's great. She has an energy on screen that is fantastic. I, I would love to see her in more things. Yeah. Um, and she's, she's really good in this. I think Jesse Plemons is very good in this. Also, I think Tony Collette's very good in this. I, I think the acting in this is great. The ideas in this movie are really interesting. The same thing I would say about um, Synecdoche, New York, which I, I found myself very intrigued by, but just like I, when the movie ended, I just like didn't really understand why, what I had watched. So which is why like, you know, my earlier analysis, I think Charlie Kaufman, you know, and far be it for me to tell, you know, a celebrated screenwriter how to, you know, make movies, but I think he would really benefit from going back to collaborating because, you know, the movies that he made with Spike Jones and others, the 90s and, and 2000s, were masterpieces. And two of the three so far that he's directed have fallen short of that because of just the lack of a structure, the messiness of them, for whatever reason, to me, lacks the ability to just... Uh, you're touching on something which is, to me, the beauty of movies and you know, TVs as well, versus, for instance, like a book, which is some multi-party uh, production. You know, I used to tell people during the good days of Game of Thrones, the reason why like seasons three and four of Game of Thrones, or maybe two, three, and four of Game of Thrones was better than the book material, frankly, is that you just had all these creative minds coming together from the various directors and the producers and the actors and the scriptwriters and the cast directors and the people making the scenery versus, you know, one old former scriptwriter in Hollywood in New Mexico 
kind of creating everything on his own. And like that can create beautiful, beautiful things. And so I'm always, except for when it's like a studio gets involved and like reduces it to nothing in favor of more cooks in the kitchen, I find with movies. I, I generally find that's kind of the beauty of the movie that there's a lot of cooks as opposed to, you know, something like a, a novel where it's a single hand doing everything. The entire kind of ride away from the home, she keeps repeating over and over, like, I want to go home. I want to be done with this. This ice cream is melting. And I didn't like the second half of the movie. And every single time she said, like, I just want to be done with this already. I was like, yep, (laughs) (laughs) you got me. And uh, yeah, you know, maybe she's too good an actress because I think it's dangerous in a movie when you have someone voice the sentiment of, can't this be done already? I'm bored. The, uh, the audience avatar. It's very dangerous to put that into the second half of a movie. It, you got to yeah, be bored. It, rem- it reminded me of the best uh, audience avatar moment of, the, of last year was in Uncut Gems when Adina Menzel says to uh, Adam Sandler, you are the most annoying <laughs> yeah. person I've ever met, you've met and I hope I never see you again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Ah, Uncut like, Gems. Same. On the, the theme of this episode of glum, disappointment, thinking of ending things, so to speak, what were your three biggest cinematic disappointments in 2020 so far? Uh, and these can um, be movies you liked, but you wished would have been amazing. These can be movies you hated and, you know, were hoping for something. Well, however it is, well, what's your number three? And we'll build up to our number one. So my number three is a little bit of a cheat. And uh, I, I think you may, uh, you may be going in a similar direction. And that is Tenet, which is a movie that I hope to actually see. Disappointing because you haven't had a chance to see it. It's disappointing because of the whole release strategy has been a complete clusterfuck. Like, I mean, the fact that yeah. they've decided to actually go ahead and release it, but then like only in certain places. So now like some parts of the country are seeing it and some aren't. I mean, the box office numbers have been a complete disaster. So I guess, you know, they got what they deserved in trying to rush this thing out when every other movie studio in the world realized that this is not the time to, for these big blockbuster releases. Yeah, I mean, it's just now it's, it's like half pregnant. Some people have seen it, some people haven't. Like it completely missed its moment to, you know, have this, you know, cultural impact because now by the time more people are going to get to see it, like the moment will have passed. Yeah. And as we all know from this episode, Ab does not like things involving pregnancy. I like some things involving pregnancy. As long as they're not September associated. I'll give my number three, very different direction. I was considering some of the truly, you know, putrid movies I've seen, like the true history of the Kelly gang or extraordinary. Um, or even a movie like Misbehavior, which has Jesse Buckley. It came out this month, but no one should see Misbehavior because it's really bad. But I skipped all those because none of those really deserve any more reference than they just got. And my number three is Capone. I think it's an obvious pick. I think when you had Tom Hardy as Al Capone dealing with his demons, it was such a great setup. And the movie really could have been out of the park, you know, a 2020 showstopper. Still enjoyed it, but it's obviously very flawed and it's a forgettable movie. And, you know, it was disappointing. It should have been up there as one of the redeemable marks of this year. And instead, it's, you know, my third biggest disappointment. My number two is The Hunt, uh, referenced earlier. (laughs) Um, It is a movie that got so much attention because of its initial trailer. Um, The fact that, you know, the president of the United States was was complaining about this movie before it had even been released. They delayed it. They were going to, I don't know if they re-edited it. They re-released it with a different marketing strategy. You know, because of all of that drama around it, um, and like what I thought was like a pretty interesting premise, I was excited to see it, even though it's not the type of movie that I would usually like run to see right when it comes out. This one I did, it sucked. So it was very disappointing. Little did you know that it would end up being one of the best movies you saw in theaters of 2020. 
Well, I didn't see it in theaters. I saw oh. it on uh, VOD. Oh, okay. When you said you ran to see it, I thought maybe you... you well, it no, came like, out I, right before theaters closed, no? Right around that time. I don't remember exactly. And I think it was one of the first movies that, well, that they did the VOD release strategy for. So I, you know, I laid down the $20 to see it, and it was a big waste of my money. Oh, so it deserves your number two spot. Cash that you put in versus the enjoyment you got out, it's the biggest miss of the year. Yeah, it's by far the most I've paid for a movie in a long time. Okay, well, you're speaking to the wrong audience there. My number two, you're not going to like as much, but maybe you'll sympathize a bit, and that's Hamilton. And I get it. It's Hamilton. How can it be a disappointment? The reason is, and this, after all I heard, and I have so many friends in the New York area who you know, waited months and years to get a ticket to see the show, and people who saw the show when it was traveling around North America, and how it was this transcendent experience. And then I saw it, the movie, and it was the first time I saw the story, listened to the music, and it was entertaining. It was very entertaining. And some of the songs are really terrific, but it wasn't transcendent. And it wasn't something, and again, it, it's very unfair for me to judge because basically I was watching an in-person experience, but not in person, which, right. you know, shout out to the theater and the power of the theater, which I have a lot of respect for. And therefore, Hamilton, I think it had been built up to such an extent that I thought I was going to have this once in a lifetime bit of cultural experience on my hands. And it was something that I like a lot. But, you know, it's nothing more than that. I'll remember it, but I won't kind of, you know, remember the time I saw it. So therefore, it's number two on my list. I'll just say that I very much disagree. I'm a humongous Hamilton fan. I've seen it in the theater three times. The, uh, the movie release was about as good. It was actually much better than I expected. I thought it was about as good as a filmed live performance could be. Film performances of musicals, there isn't really a pedigree there for anything great. Yeah, I agree. You know, it, it, it is what it, it was. What it was, you know, it wasn't yeah. you know a, a reimagining. Um, it was yeah. a taping of a of a live performance, um, which is obviously going to have limitations and yeah. you know, how how uh, engaging it's going to be. To me, it's just a a complete gift that I can just put on and watch Hamilton whenever I want. There's a reason that no one celebrates other filming of even great, great, great musicals because generally a filming of a musical is just they're not they're not like special experiences at, on the level of seeing it live or as you said on the level of a really good reimagining so it was done to the best it could be but it's caught within the limitations of i think of it of its form my Your number biggest one disappointment is, of 2020 so far my, my biggest disappointment of 2020 so far is another adaptation it's the uh adaptation of the uh icelandic film force majeure ah, i remember uh, this yeah it features julia louis dreyfus and will ferrell it's called downhill force majeure was one of my favorite movies of the 2010s it's fantastic and i think it's still streaming on hulu and i would encourage everyone who hasn't seen it to go see it because I, I think it's a really incredible film about the breakdown of a marriage and downhill was a it attempted to be like you know given the uh, the actors involved a comedic uh, adaptation of that and it just felt really it felt really really flat um the tone was just like way off very slapsticky at times it didn't work bad feral is bad bad right? feral becomes really cringy in an unintentional way not like in a larry david michael scott you know whether you like that or not like it just becomes like a train wreck when he's not when his thing is not working because of you did not see the one that came out this year and i did see the yeah. original one my number one probably won't surprise people because Av gave it a, a heads up earlier. My number one is Tenet. And it, I feel exactly the same way as Av, even more so in that, as it's no secret to listeners, I see most of my movies off of French Netflix. And so I figured, and I actually managed to convince Av that, okay, you know, we're going to get a good French Netflix screening of Tenet sometime in September. 
So, you know, we'll be like the cool critics that will release a review, even while most of us aren't able to really see it. Mainly for what I've said, which is they so bungled the release. I think they should have had, you know, an in theaters and then had some sort of really cool, splashy digital release. I get that you want to see this thing live. You want to have the massive cinematic effect. But I think they could have had a really cool digital release and still own the month of September. And, you know, it still would have been like the movie moment, like the Michael Jordan documentary uh, of this month, you know, that people would have been talking about Tenet. And they even bungled it in that all those people I count on to get us good illegal streaming copies have also been unable to. And I guess they did a good job of securing its digital privacy. But as a result, we can't even see it on digital streaming somehow so that we could at least give it a bit of attention and a bit of love. So from every angle, I think it was just a Yeah, a well, from their perspective, that's probably their only success is that they've prevented that because now when I, I assume the, they'll inevitably re-release this in theaters once it's, you know, they're able to do so in more places. It'll come out in theaters. James Bond will come up the next week and like, it'll, it'll, it'll move on. Like our, t- our attention spans will move right on. We'll already be listening to like President Biden unroll the last four years and- Inshallah. Yeah, and, and James Bond, you know, remind us- what movies are like. And I think that's what's going to happen with Tenet. I think they should have tried to own September, really had some sort of creative digital release or at least, you know, sent in some sort of spy to China with a really great camera and let him film it. But, you know, none of those things happened. Tenet remains a ghost. It is like the vanished imam who uh, is with us, but not really with us. Uh, On the subject of vanished imams, do you have a classic from another generation that can maybe come and either salvage some of the glum movies from September, or maybe just double down? I will go with a classic from 1983. Um, It is the movie War Games with Matthew Broderick, I had never seen before. Is that where he plays like a teenager, but like he has like a really weird computer system? He like kind of like hacks into the computer system that oversees like the the U.S. uh, nuclear weapons cache somehow, reprograms the computers to make it that there's an, it's very soon going to be a, a nuclear event and yeah. then they kind of have to try to roll it back. It's very, very 80s with like just like the 80s camp and like unseriousness that I just like really enjoy to like make such a, a movie with such high stakes but just like not take itself too seriously because like not feel the need to explain how this works or why it's happening and just like go with it and just enjoy seeing Ferris Bueller. Um, yeah. even though Ferris Bueller wasn't a thing that existed yet at the time. I tend to think of Michael J. Fox as like the go-to teenage guy of the 80s and not Matthew Broderick, but like Matthew Broderick has like killer roles. Watch Back to the Future with my daughter. She's actually turning seven tomorrow. So I was going to say six-year-old, but soon to be seven. I experienced something with her that I had never experienced before, which was we watched the first movie and she immediately insisted that we watch the second movie. She was like so into it and just so wanted to see what happens next and where How it goes. How did she know there was a second movie? I guess I probably had told her that it's like, you know, I told her like, it's like Star Wars that there's like, you know, there's several movies. Um, and if you like it, we can see more. And she like, yeah. literally like we, the, the movie ended and she's like started like jumping up and down. She's like, can we watch the second now? Can we watch the second now? And then we watch them back to back. I think she's rewatched the first two like on her own at least once. Uh, so she's like really into them. She told me that generally when we watch movies, she, she likes watching movies, but she really watches movies because we get to eat popcorn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> except the only two movies that she liked the movie more than the popcorn is Back to the Future and Star Wars. So I think I'm doing a good job. I can't have a parent corner because I don't have any kids, but yeah. uh, using the, the Minnesota Twins, Oliver Shalom, as a, as a touch point, in 1991 when the Twins went to the World Series, if you can imagine those days when they were good and clutch in the playoffs, my dad took my brother downtown for, I think, game five or game six 
to go like buy tickets off the street, pretty much Netflix style, and you know get and to watch it live. And he didn't take me because he said it's really hard to get three tickets, but it's much easier to get two. So he didn't want to risk it and you know be stuck not getting tickets and have to come back home. I was really upset and I was like five years old at the time. What I effectively, I think my dad figured out is that what I really was upset about was that when we went to see baseball live, we got snacks and we got a big soda. And so he made sure that when I watched the, the World Series game at home by myself, because him and my brother got in and they saw live, that my mom made a big thing of popcorn for me and got like a big cola. And so I watched the movie, I sorry, I watched the movie. I watched the game at home and I got what your daughter appreciates. And I think by the end of it, you know, with the incredible World Series that it was, I started appreciating what was on screen as much as what was in my mouth. Identify with your daughter very strongly. I think you identify with my classic corner because it came out in the 80s as well. Uh, very different. It came out in 1985. It's an Oscar winner, so I'm sure you've seen it. And it's a movie that for years I thought was a bad 1980s superhero flick uh, because it's called Kiss of the Spider Woman. I, I always just kind of associated when I heard the title has been like, oh, that's like before Spider-Man Spider movies were good. That's probably one of those crappy ones. Uh, but it's obviously very, very, very different. William Hurt, he's the lead. It's him in jail in sort of a Brazil type country in the 1970s and 80s. And it's about him and other political prisoners in jail and how they sort of form male friendships and push back against the regime and the fantasies that they have in their minds of what they'll do when they get out of jail and you know, what they ultimately do do when they get out of jail. And what's special about the movie beyond Hurt's performance, which is really, really good. He's the lead, he plays a sort of strange, I guess, kind of upper middle class homosexual. He's the only homosexual. I think the movie was sort of famous in the way that he was homosexual at the time. The movie has this very conflicted narrative in its criticism of like male friendships, male sexuality, police states, memory, Nazis, desire, loyalty, sort of gives you a lot of different perspectives. And it's a complicated movie. And therefore, it lives up to its reputation. If you haven't seen it, Av, I would, certainly, I, I would certainly encourage Kiss of the Spider Woman. It's kind of one of those like good old, they don't make those anymore type movies. Added it to my watch list as we spoke. It's special. I mean, William Hurt, once you see him in this, you can sort of reappreciate him in sort of other 80s style movies that he mm -hmm. was in. Looking to October, I, we're going to move past this sort of grim and glum September feeling at the theaters. I hope so. Although the, the movie that I'm aware of, the big movie, is the Aaron Sorkin movie about the, yeah. uh, the riots at the 68 convention. Yeah. So more in the same vein. I see there's a movie coming out called American Pop Girls Rules. So that's probably a different tone. War with Grandpa. Why does that sound familiar? I think that's a book I read when I was younger. It's an adaptation of a Robert Kimmel Smith book, uh, who was oh, one wow. of my favorite authors when I was a kid. I'm reading Chocolate Fever with my daughter now. And uh, when did they say the new Borat movie is coming out, I think, late the October? End. I mean, I guess I'll watch it. I'm kind of out on Borat. I've lost interest in his whole shtick. Having seen some of these mentalist Netflix specials, mostly the work of Darren Brown. Have you ever seen The Push by Darren Brown? No. Oh, it's a must watch. You should watch that. I think it's still on Netflix. You should watch that immediately. It's like an hour special. The premise is, he calls himself a mentalist, but the idea is he's going to be presented with like a group of people and he's going to pick one. And by the end of the night, he's going to get this person to push another stranger off the top of a building. And it's an experiment to see whether he could accomplish that by manipulating different situations. I would highly recommend that and some of his other work. But I would say that like once I started watching those, I realized that Borat or Sacha Baron Cohen uses a lot of the psychological manipulations that this guy does. And that therefore, 
I started to just feel more empathetic for these people that he's really just like taking advantage of and kind yeah. of just like manipulating him into doing what he, I think there's just like an, an effect that people have that when they realize that they're part of a performative thing, they'll go along with it. If you can get them to like, you'll see that some of the stuff that Borat does like literally involves people reading off cue cards. People like they don't think through what they're doing because they feel like they want to be part of something and they don't want it to go badly. They'll kind of just go along with it. I find him though, a really fascinating as an individual. I mean, I thought with the social dilemma, the movie you said you really liked from this past month and you know, such Sacha Cohen has made some of Facebook and its impact on American society a major cause. The remarks he gave about two months ago on that subject made a big impression on me and I thought, you know, were very well said. So I find him as an individual pretty dynamic. You know, he reaches sort of into the gutter sometimes. So I think October will be a bridge to post-COVID movie months Let's to hope. come. It looks like also, so there's going to be two other Netflix movies that have been anticipated. One is Mank. I'm on moviephone.com and it says it's scheduled to come out October 31st. David Fincher's movie about Mankovich and the creation the of Citizen of, Kane. Yeah. Rebecca, the remake of the 1940 Alfred Hitchcock Best Picture winner. It looks like it's slated to be released on Netflix on October 21st. I haven't seen Rebecca, but I've been doing a little bit of a, a Hitchcock binge over the last month or so. I've watched five Hitchcock films. I'm excited to watch Rebecca and then watch the uh, Rebecca remake. October looks like it has some potential. Yeah. Um, and then hopefully there'll be some surprises too, so that way we can, uh, we can have a nice episode next month. I want to laugh a bit. I want to see a movie. I want to be transported a bit, regardless of sort of how some of the political, political climate goes and corona climate goes. You know, I want to be taken on a spin that way. And I don't just want to be thinking about She Dies Tomorrow or Kiss of the Spider Woman or Capone or, you know, I Used to Go Here or, you know, or just, just look over the titles of the movies we discussed in September. Obviously, I'm thinking of ending things. I, I kind of want to move a bit away from the suicidal thoughts that were with us this month. That's my wish to the God of Hollywood. Let it become true. when there's a moon in my window And it slants down a beam across my bed And the shadow of a tree Starts a dancing on the wall And a dream starts a dancing in my head And all of the things that I wish for Turn out like I want them to be And I'm better than that smart alley cow hand Who thinks he's better than me And the girl that I want Ain't afraid my arms and her own soft arms keep me warm and her long tangled hair falls across my face just like a rain in a storm I gonna dream of rose no more I ain't gonna leave her alone Going outside Get myself a bride Get me a woman To call my